Our text this Lord's Day is taken from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And there we read, And Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that ye may learn them and keep and do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord. For ye were afraid by reason of the fire and went not up into the mount. As we continue our study of national covenanting from the scripture, we're faced with a few perplexing questions. And I'm going to try to hear in this next few sentences, try to give you a number of questions without answering them, but hopefully they will be answered by the end of the sermon this Lord's Day. For example, questions like these. Can a national covenant bind posterity perpetually? If the covenant is altered, either by way of words or by way of circumstances, in the least point, does the alteration mean that the covenant is no longer binding that original lawful covenant? In other words, is a national covenant still binding upon posterity if any of the circumstances and if any of the words used in the original covenant have been subsequently altered in a covenant renewal? And even in the smallest detail. When is an altered covenant no longer essentially the same covenant as the one that was originally sworn. In other words, how much and what kind of alteration may be performed on the original covenant so that it is no longer the same as that original covenant, so that it's actually a different covenant. As we shall see when we discuss more specifically the Solemn League and Covenant, that of 1643, in the near future, God willing, there are those who maintain that if any of the words and if any of the circumstances that are included in the original Solemn League and Covenant must be altered or changed because they no longer apply <coughs> to a succeeding generation, then the covenant itself no longer binds posterity. Now, why do they say that? Because it is said that it is no longer the same covenant. For example, 
if the words king and parliament, which are words found in the original Solemn League and Covenant, no longer apply to a nation or to its national posterity, because a nation now has, for example, a, a president and a congress instead of a king and parliament, then, according to those holding this view, the Solemn League and Covenant no longer binds that nation or that national posterity. And the reason it no longer binds, according to this view, is because the explicit words and circumstances in the original covenant no longer apply as they once did. But the question is, that we want to answer, is that true? Is there scriptural support for such a view? Or may a national covenant perpetually bind posterity even when specific words or circumstances have altered the original covenant? Do such circumstantial changes alter the essence and substance of a lawful national covenant? These are the questions, the kinds of questions that we hope by God's grace to answer uh, this Lord's Day. And so, basically there's one main point uh, because it's going to take uh, the, the whole sermon to answer this question. And so this is the, the point that we will seek by God's grace to establish today. A lawful national covenant may include alterable circumstances and yet perpetually bind posterity. Now, we read earlier Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and we did so, uh, as we shall see uh, in a few minutes, because this is basically a covenant renewal that is spoken of in Deuteronomy 5. The original covenant was made at Mount Sinai. This covenant is a covenant renewal before the people of God entered into the promised land. It was made in the land of Midian. And so, here in the land of Midian, uh, the Lord speaks through Moses to all Israel and says that the covenant that they are about to take or to renew is one which God made with them, them living in the land of Midian. He says, not with your forefathers, what he means is not only with your forefathers, but with you who were not even living at that particular time. Because remember, there was approximately 40 years that had passed. Those who were uh, a certain age, 20 years of age, those who were uh, 20 years of age and older survived that particular 40-year period. Those who were younger... Uh, or did not survive, those who were younger did survive that period of time. And uh, so that's the generation, and many, no doubt, during that 40 years, had been born that were not present at Mount Sinai. But God speaking through Moses says that it was you that I made it, in effect, it was you I made a covenant with at Mount Sinai. Many of you who were not even there. And so, uh, what we want to try to demonstrate by introducing this portion of scripture is we want to just briefly, in this sermon, to look at 
the covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai 40 years earlier and this covenant renewal and see, in fact, whether there were any changes that were made. Any words that are different. Anything that was, that was considered to be alterable. Because, again, if we can demonstrate that there were changes made in the covenant, not a backsliding, as we will note, from that covenant originally made, but yet changes made, then how can the other position say that whenever there is any change made, that it's no longer the same covenant? God says this: the covenant they're about to renew with them is the same covenant that they made with him at Mount Sinai. So let, let's allow God himself to demonstrate from his word whether a covenant renewal must have exactly the same words, whether or not words can be altered and changed or circumstances be altered and changed, and yet that original covenant be binding. First, let's go back to Exodus uh, chapters 19 through 20 and just do a real quick overview of the context in which the Ten Commandments are given. And then we're going to consider more closely the words in some of the commandments. <coughs> the context immediately preceding the giving of the Ten Commandments is that of God covenanting with Israel to be their God and Israel covenanting with God to be his people. And so there was a mutual covenant, a, na a national covenant on the part of Israel by which they owned God to be their God and they also owned themselves to be God's people as a nation and as a church. <coughs> Note with me that in Exodus 19.4, Jehovah first identifies himself if you want to look there at Exodus 19.4, Jehovah first identifies himself as Israel's Savior in delivering them out of bondage in Egypt and in saving them from destruction. Very much like he compares himself to an eagle that carries its babies on its wings. And so God carried Israel in redeeming them out of destruction. He carried them out of Egypt and out of bondage. And so we read in Exodus 19.4, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now in Exodus 19.5, the next verse, because Israel had already been redeemed by the Lord and brought unto the God of their salvation. Israel is on their part to express their faith, their love, and gratitude to Jehovah by willingly obeying his commandments and keeping his covenant in which they are about to engage themselves as both a nation and as a church. We read in Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore... so. Based on the fact, God says, that I redeemed you, that I bear you on eagles' wings, that, that I brought you unto myself. 
On that basis, therefore, ye will obey my voice. God is not giving to them uh, here a covenant of works, declaring to them, you know, obey me that you may be uh, redeemed. Obey me that you may be justified. Obey me that you may uh, be saved. But he's saying, because I did redeem you, because I did save you, therefore, keep. Obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant. Then shall ye be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. If Israel as a nation and as a church obeys God's commandments and keeps God's covenant as an evidence of their faith in the Lord, the Lord promises on his part to honor them as his chosen and redeemed people throughout the whole world, as we see in verses 5 through 6. And I'll just continue reading in verse 6. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. <clears throat> Moses then, after this declaration as to what God would do, Moses then takes this gracious covenant to the official rulers and the leaders, the representatives of the people in Israel in Exodus 19.7, who engage themselves on behalf of all of Israel, on behalf of the whole congregation of Israel. They engage themselves to faithfully follow the Lord as his nation, as his church, as we see in chapter 19, verse 8. And all the people, and uh, there it's described in verse 7 who all the people were, the elders uh, of the people. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people <coughs> unto the Lord. <coughs> so this is a mutual, this is a mutual uh, covenant, a national covenant, a covenant of grace and mercy to this nation. What I'm seeking to show by way of the context surrounding the Ten Commandments, which follow in chapter 20, is that Israel was originally given by God to be a covenanted nation and a covenanted church. And the Ten Commandments are a part of the gracious covenant which God and Israel made with one another. For as we turn to the preface to the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 2, we read these words. <coughs> and God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. <coughs> and we observe in these words, likewise, that obedience to the Ten Commandments was not the ground of Israel's salvation but rather that obedience to the Ten Commandments was the result and the evidence of Israel's faith in the prior redemption and salvation of God. For first, Jehovah declares himself to be Israel's God and Redeemer, and on the basis of that, on the basis of God's salvation, Israel is called to obey the Lord by keeping his commandments and covenant. 
the fact that the Ten Commandments with the preface that we've just read in Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, were in fact a part of a gracious covenant between God and Israel, does not mean, however, that the Ten Commandments are only intended for Israel, as we shall see. They are a universal moral standard of God's righteousness for all people and for all nations. For example, in Romans chapter 3, we see this uh, truth made exceedingly clear in many, many other places. But in, in Romans chapter 3, there is an appeal to the law of God to demonstrate the guiltiness of all the world, all the nations, before God. In Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, we read... <clears throat> Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so... We can look at the Ten Commandments with the preface as a covenant of grace, or we can take just the Ten Commandments as revealing the righteousness of God as a covenant of works which bind universally every human being, uh, which speak to uh, the righteousness that God requires perfectly in order to find favor and acceptance with him. And again, because Paul says, no man has kept the law of God. All men are, men are accountable, Jew or Gentile, doesn't make any difference, that God sent the Lord Jesus Christ to keep that covenant of works. This law of God, the Ten Commandments, he sent Jesus Christ to perfectly keep that uh, for his people, that they may have salvation through faith in Jesus, the covenant keeper, the second Adam. He did not fail like the first Adam, but perfectly kept the covenant for his people as the second Adam. Know what is said in this regard in the larger catechism with regard to the uh, preface to the Ten Commandments, question 101. The question is, what is the preface to the Ten Commandments? The preface to the Ten Commandments is contained in these words. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now notice, that's uh, what the preface says now. The larger catechism goes on to explain what that means. Wherein God manifesteth his sovereignty as being Jehovah, the eternal, immutable, and almighty God, having his being in and of himself, and giving being to all his words and works. And that he is a God in covenant, as with Israel of old, so with all his people, who as he brought them out of their bondage in Egypt, so he delivereth us 
from our spiritual thraldom, and that therefore we are bound to take him for our God alone and to keep all his commandments. And so the, the application to us of that original covenant is that this is a covenant of grace wherein is exemplified God delivering us from our spiritual thraldom, slavery, and bondage out of our own Egypt and house of bondage and uh, of bringing us to himself so that we might likewise keep all his commandments. Well, having considered the covenantal context in the giving of the Ten Commandments, let us briefly consider specific alterations made to three of the Ten Commandments, which I would submit demonstrate that the Scripture itself allows for specific words to be altered in a lawful national covenant without altering the perpetual obligation of that covenant to all posterity. Turn with me, if you would, to the to the uh, fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. And follow along as I read it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, (coughs) the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now this version of the fourth commandment was given, as I said, at Mount Sinai, when Israel first engaged itself as a nation and as a church in covenant to be God's people. Hold your place there and turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. And uh, I'll read verses 12 through 15, the fourth commandment. Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 15. Now, here are the words that are declared there as the fourth commandment. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thine ox, nor thine ass, nor any of thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. And remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand, and by a stretched out arm, therefore the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. Now, if you, again, I'm not going to uh, go word by word, phrase by phrase, but uh, a careful comparing of the two passages is going to yield uh, uh, some significant 
differences between the fourth commandment as to the actual precise wording. Not as to the sense, not as to the substance, not as to the moral obligations, but as to the precise words that are mentioned. And again, the, the whole, uh, particularly all uh, of verse 15, nearly all of verse 15 is, uh, is something that is added that you won't find in the original uh, giving of God's law in Exodus 20. A reminder of uh, how they were servants uh, at one time. And therefore, to show mercy to your own servants, your own manservant, to your own maidservant, to be merciful to them, uh, and uh, not to exact of them labor uh, that uh, is not necessary on the on the Sabbath day, and so that is uh, amplified uh, uh, to uh, to demonstrate that particular duty which is already present in the original giving of the, the covenant and the law, but it's amplified here in Deuteronomy 5. <clears throat> and yet this version that we have just read in Deuteronomy chapter 5, as I said and as we read from our, from our text in De- Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 5, this version is a renewal of the same covenant that God made with them at Sinai. God says so himself. I didn't say that. God says that the covenant that they are about to make is, is uh, the covenant that he made with them originally because he's saying to them that that original covenant was made with them at Mount Sinai. It's not as though that the, 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 the covenant made at Mount Sinai was made with their fathers, but this covenant is made with them. God is saying, no, that original covenant was made with you as well. And, and this covenant now that is being renewed, and though there may be some alterations uh, by way of the language, uh, is the same covenant, essentially. There's no essential difference between it, even though there are circumstantial, as to the outward form of the covenant, the precise words, there are some changes. So, the question is, how could the covenant made in the land of Midian be essentially the same covenant in sense and substance with that that's found in Exodus 20 at Mount Sinai, if there has been, in fact, an alteration in the words of that national, that lawful national covenant? And I would submit that this is the, the proper biblical response. It's not the mere alteration of the words that are used that make a lawful covenant unlawful but rather the backsliding from the moral principles to which a national covenant was previously engaged and thus the perverting the moral truths which a nation previously owned that turns a lawful covenant into an unlawful covenant. You see, it's one thing to alter the specific words of a lawful national covenant because a nation no longer embraces those moral principles. It's another thing to alter the words of a lawful national covenant in order to clarify the same moral principles in its application to different circumstances not previously mentioned. Thus, it is not, as I said, the outward written 
form of a lawful national covenant or the outward circumstances of a lawful national covenant that are unalterable, but rather the moral truths and principles that are agreeable to the law of God that are unalterable. Now, I won't, again, belabor the point except to say it's not only the words of the fourth commandment that are altered, but also the words of the fifth commandment that are altered. If you look at Deuteronomy 15:16 and compare that with, uh, with the fifth commandment in Exodus 20, and the words of the tenth commandment in Deuteronomy 5:21, if you compare the tenth commandment uh, in um, Exodus 20. So, to summarize what we have thus far said, what does this demonstrate? What does this demonstrate? It demonstrates, again, I want you to get this point. I, I think it's very, very important. It demonstrates that the precise words of a national, a lawful national covenant may be changed without altering the sense and substance of a lawful national covenant. But there must be this qualification in place. There can be no alteration that would either state or imply any backsliding, perverting, or minimizing former obligations to moral principles contained in the original lawful national covenant. Dear ones, this is just a, I think uh, we understand this as just being uh, a truth in many different areas. You know, having made a lawful promise, any of us, having made a lawful promise, you cannot alter the sense and substance of that promise so as to loose yourself from that promise. Let's say that Israel wanted to worship other gods or to marry heathen wives. Could they alter the covenant they had made with God to that effect? Of course not. The moral principles of God's law being universal in nature cannot be altered. However, if Israel wanted to make clear that the moral truths in their national covenant not only apply to them when they have judges, but also when they have kings, not only when they are one nation, but when they're split, uh, uh, divided asunder into two different nations, not only when they are free, but also when they are in captivity, such changes that might be made in these different circumstances or perhaps in the actual words used in covenant renewals that follow thereafter <clears throat> do not alter the sense and the substance of their lawful national covenant but only alter changeable circumstances which as we shall see has been the practice of our covenanting forefathers in their national covenants as well. <clears throat> that we won't do today, but when we get to that point, we'll see how they have faithfully followed the same scriptural principles. I ask you, how firm and secure would promises, covenants, oaths, or vows be if we could alter the sense and substance of the promise when our circumstances changed? In other words, simply because outward circumstances change, we no longer have to keep the, the original covenant that we made, or the promise we made. How firm and binding would any of our promises be? 
knowing our own sinful nature, we would be looking for reasons to say, look at how different my circumstances are now. I'm no longer bound to keep that covenant or that promise I made. My circumstances have changed now. But you see, it would make a mockery. We would come, uh, in effect, a laughingstock. We would uh, basically be spitting upon the authority of God in, in, in uh, the many, many places in God's word that says that we are to swear to our own hurt in keeping lawful promises and oaths and covenants and vows. Make a mockery of a promise because, as I said, we will seek to justify at any point, if we know that we can uh, uh, loose ourselves from those kinds of obligations, we would look in every possible way to loose ourselves from those obligations when those obligations make things very uncomfortable for us. Observe, dear ones, that in the various covenant renovations subsequent to Moses and Joshua, whether they were covenant uh, um, renovations under King Asa in 2 Chronicles 15, under King Josiah in 2 Chronicles 23, under King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29, under Joseph, King Josiah in 2 Chronicles 34, under Ezra in Ezra 10, or under Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapters 9 through 10. The circumstances, this is the point, in all these covenant renovations, the circumstances of Israel had in various ways changed. And in some cases had drastically changed. And yet, in all of these examples of covenant renovation and renewal, the alteration of different circumstances, and even in the, the, the words that are actually cited in the covenant renovations, did not alter the sense and the substance of the moral principles found in the original covenant made at Mount Sinai, nor did it change the perpetual obligation to all posterity, simply because the circumstances were different, or simply because the exact precise same words were not used in the covenant renovations. For example, the original national covenant of Israel <clears throat> was made while Israel was under the rule of judges, like Moses and Joshua, rather than under kings like Asa, Hezekiah, and Josiah. So a change of form of government did not alter the covenant. And yet, the perpetual obligation of the national covenant made at Mount Sinai continue to all posterity under these changes in the outward circumstances of the nation and church of Israel. Furthermore, the original national covenant was made with a united Israel consisting of 12 tribes. Whereas the covenant renewals under Asa, Jehoiada, Hezekiah, Josiah, Ezra, and Nehemiah were made with part, with part of the original Israel due to the division of the nation into two kingdoms, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. So it wasn't a united Israel any longer. It wasn't the 12 tribes of Israel. It was rather a part of that original 12 that covenanted, renewed their covenants in these various cases. And yet the perpetual obligation of the national covenant made at Mount Sinai continued to all posterity under <coughs> these changes in the outward circumstances of the nation of Israel. <coughs> 
Moreover, the national or the original national covenant was, that was made at Mount Sinai with a, was made with a free people who had been delivered from the rule of a pagan nation, whereas the covenant renewal under Ezra and Nehemiah was made with a vassal people in servitude uh, to the rule of the, the Medes and the Persians. Some pretty different sets of political circumstances. God even appeals to Israel in captivity in the various prophets, particularly in Ezekiel, as his covenant people. Even though they were guilty of having sinned and violated his covenant, and they were incapacitated from following the ceremonial laws due to the temple being destroyed and having no fully functioning priesthood and having few of the ordinances of God which God had appointed. And yet, they were still bound to the moral principles as God's covenant people, they were bound to the moral principles found in that covenant in Mount Sinai. This is a point I'm trying to make by elaborating on the covenant made at Mount Sinai, the original national covenant, one of, of grace made with Israel. And in comparison, uh, comparison to national covenants like the Solemn League and Covenant, that covenant at Mount Sinai was clearly initiated by God with his people. Those people did likewise mutually covenant to be God's people. It was initiated by God. The, the fire upon Mount Sinai, uh, the thunder and the lightning, etc., etc., demonstrating the awesomeness of God with whom they were entering into covenant. The Solemn League and Covenant was uh, uh, instituted uh, or initiated by man, by the kingdoms of England, Ireland, and Scotland. Now, my point simply is this. If the greater, when God initiates a covenant with man, that in that covenant there can be alterations, modifications by way of making things more clear without altering the moral principles, but yet in a covenant God makes with man or initiates with man, those alterations can occur that's, I consider, to be the greater. Then I simply say, so likewise, the same thing can happen with the lesser when man initiates a covenant with God. If the greater, then the lesser. As long as, again, there is no backsliding, deviating from the moral principles that were uh, made in the original national covenant. Now, what about Galatians 3.15? Because there in Galatians 3.15, it says, you'll recall, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. <clears throat> well, clearly, in light of the previous scriptural testimony, 
Paul in Galatians 3.15 is not forbidding the addition and alteration in an absolute sense, but he's forbidding it in a particular sense. That is, adding and altering a law... Uh, altering a law, lawful covenant so as to actually change the sense and substance of the original lawful covenant is prohibited. That's the kind of adding to or altering that Paul forbids. You cannot change the original sense or substance of the original covenant. That is prohibited in Galatians 3.15. But adding words and altering outward circumstances without backsliding from the moral principles of a lawful covenant is not prohibited. In fact, Paul uses the truth in Galatians 3.15, this is very interesting for any who would use this passage to say you can't, you can't alter in any sense uh, a lawful covenant <clears throat> once it's confirmed. Um, Paul uses the truth in Galatians 3.15 to demonstrate that the covenant promises made to uh, Abraham <coughs> are yet certain promises made to the seed of, of Abraham, namely to Christ and all those who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. And although the moral principles of that covenant made between Abraham and God continue unabated, the outward sign of that covenant that was made with, between God and Abraham, that it, God gave to Abraham, namely that of circumcision, was changed to baptism. The moral truths remained the same, even though the outward circumstances were changed. The outward administration was changed. Thus, even Galatians 3.15 implicitly recognizes the validity of altering outward circumstances of a covenant without altering the sense and the substance of a lawful covenant. And just by way of closing application, dear ones, uh, this, I submit to you, shows the sinfulness of our own hearts when, dear ones, we or anyone else would seek to loose God from lawful covenants made with him or loose ourselves from lawful covenants made with God due to changes in our outward circumstances. Dear ones, we must understand that it is that very covenant faithfulness on God's part who will not, who will not be loosed from lawful covenants that is our salvation. The fact that God will keep his covenant regardless of circumstances, regardless of how our lives change, the fact that he will ever be faithful to his covenant is our hope. It's not something, dear ones, for us to, to uh, look upon in a negative way, but rather to look in a positive way that God will not be loosed from his covenant with his people. If this were not the case, we would be in covenant when we are obedient and then we'd be out of covenant when we're disobedient. But God's covenant faithfulness to us does not depend upon our obedience or lack thereof, but depends, dear ones, upon Christ's absolute and perfect obedience to the covenant of works which Adam failed to keep. If we begin to argue that we can loose ourselves from lawful covenants due to our changing circumstances, we also, by inference, uh, 
say that God may do the same. That God may lose himself due to our, our changing circumstances. He may lose himself from covenant to us. And the consequences of such a position leaves us hopelessly condemned as covenant breakers. There's no hope if that's the case. These are the consequences of such a position. To the contrary, dear ones, let us rejoice in the fact that God is ever faithful to his promises, regardless of the many changes in our circumstances and in our lives. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, I am Jehovah, I change not. Because Christ has <coughs> kept that covenant perfectly, and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, we are imputed to be covenant keepers before God, now and forevermore. Amen. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee and praise Thee for our Savior, for His work on the cross on our behalf as our covenant keeper. And we do rest in Him and in His righteousness alone. We thank Thee that, O God, Thou dost not loose Thyself from uh, Thy covenant to us, uh, even due to various changes in circumstances in our lives, or even in, due to changes from uh, thy covenant of grace in the, uh, in the Old Testament, as opposed to the New Testament, thy, thy faithfulness in keeping covenant with thy people, and upholding all of those promises, and, and Lord, even the moral principles that we find therein, remain the same. We thank thee, our God, that there is security, stability, firmness in thy covenant. Lord, we, we rest in that today. And we pray we would be a covenant-keeping people, that, Lord, we would be those who uh, swear to our own hurt, who keep our promises, who keep, uh, Lord, our uh, oaths and vows and, and covenants, and who renew them, O oh God, when we do, in fact, um, uh, break them, when we do, in fact, violate them, that, Lord, we... Repent, and we do renew them before Thee. And we are thankful that, Lord, <coughs> uh, that we can renew those covenants uh, as many times as we sin against them and break them, that uh, Thou, O Lord, are ever, are ever faithful. We do thank Thee, our God, for Thy Word, which holds us up and keeps us from falling into gross many gross errors of the times. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www. 
swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L 3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.